Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Buzz Knight, the host of Take It A Walk, Music History on Foot. And today, our guest is an award-winning director, John Scheinfeld. His great body of work includes The U.S. versus John Lennon, Herb Alpert Is. There's also a great documentary about Harry Nilsson, and he even dips his toe into the happy days of Gary Marshall. John is uh, really a pop culture historian with his work, and his newest project required quite a bit of detective work. It's part music doc, part political thriller. It's called What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? And we talk to director John Scheinfeld next on Taking a Walk. Well, John Scheinfeld, welcome to uh, Taking a Walk, and uh, congratulations on What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Oh, thank you, Buzz. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. So what is your um, criteria that you use when you consider a project uh, such as what the hell happened to BST? Uh, with any film, it's it's two things, really. The first one is, what's the story? Is the sto- story compelling enough? Does it have enough layers to it that would be worthy of putting it up on a big screen as opposed to a television documentary? Uh, and in this case, absolutely, uh, this story has everything. It has blackmail. It has international intrigue. It has uh, Richard Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger in the White House. It has so many great layers. And I, it was just irresistible uh, from that standpoint. But the second thing, Buzz, is we we need to know that there's enough audiovisual assets out there with which to tell the story. 
What I mean by that is, is there film? Is there video? Are there enough photographs? All the visual things that we, we must have to make a story come alive for a film. And that was a little dicier on this one. Um, what we did know is that uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears took along a documentary film crew when they went behind the Iron Curtain to do this tour. They shot 65 hours of film footage and then came back to Los Angeles to edit it into what was supposed to be a two-hour documentary for theaters because Blood, Sweat and Tears was as big as you can be back then. And this footage has totally vanished. We looked everywhere. The problem was the uh, uh, production company that paid for it went bankrupt in late 1970. The post-production house where we know the editing had been happening and all the film actually was stored there, they went uh, bankrupt in 1971. And so here it is, it's 50-some years later, and we're trying to follow the trail of where this material went. I had hoped they'd all put it, you know, boxed it up and put it into storage and we'd find it somewhere. But we went through every storage vault in every in L.A. and New York, uh, Washington, Virginia for government places. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then one day uh, I got a call from a woman that ran a vault here in L.A. and she didn't have anything in her computer database, but it was during covid and she was home and had nothing to do one day. So she was going through loose leaf notebooks. You and your listeners may remember those. And uh, she found some vague reference to blood, sweat and tears. And so the next time she went into the vault, she went into a far corner and in a pile of material marked for destruction, she found uh, a pristine print of what was supposed to be a shorter version of this documentary. So we had an, nearly an hour of footage to work with. And that became the foundation for our film. Long way of answering your question. You got to have those two things. And here we had a great story. And when, once we found the film, we could knew, knew that we could uh, proceed and uh, get going into production. Well, but as a pop culture uh, historian, detective work would seem for you to be something that is also part of your criteria for projects. Is that true? Very much so. And it's one of the aspects of the job that I really love. Um, just sort of rolling up your sleeves and getting into people's closets, under their beds, in their attics, uh, uh, going to archives here and there. I just love doing all of that. And I have a great team that we're all uh, very respectful and very nice people, but we're extremely persistent and we keep at it. I'll give you another example, Buzz. We, um, we knew that the band had taken a portable 8-track uh, tape machine with them, not the kind that used to be in people's cars, but a portable studio machine, and they recorded all of their concerts on this uh, Iron Curtain tour. And the tapes, we assumed, were in the same place that that 65 hours of film was. And um, we were we were not convinced we were going to be able to find it. But uh, Kathleen Ermitage, who's one of my great researchers, uh, tracked down the family of the associate producer of that documentary crew, and he had died, unfortunately, in 2018, but he had a storage unit and the family uh, uh, took everything in the storage unit and donated it to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences here in Los Angeles. But for three years, it just sat there. No one did an inventory. Nobody looked bothered to look to see what was there. And Kathleen kept very nicely uh, pushing, pushing. And this wonderful uh, archivist, Warren, finally went down into the basement and looked at it, and lo and behold, there were five of these eight-track tapes there. 
Uh, and uh, a, uh, there was, it was three, four, seven, eight, and 18 numbered. So we knew there were 18 tapes at one point. Why he kept these five, we don't know. What happened to the other ones, we don't know. But thank goodness he held on to these. Across those five tapes were 10 of the 12 songs that they performed on the tour. So we were able to really put those into our film and, and create a soundtrack that just uh, blares out at you when you listen. Well, I do have a theory later on in the interview that I want to spring on you uh, that's an adjacent theory on the uh, blackmailing tour that Blood, Sweat and Tear had to go on. So I'll... <laughs> I'll save that, and you could tell me I'm full of baloney about it later. But um, well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. If I can, but it's just one other sort of detective thing that we did on this one, and this is true for really any of the films I've made. There's always this kind of you got to track down stuff, and you find it in very strange places. Um, uh, well, I'll just give you another quick story. So I did this film a few years ago called Chasing Train about John Coltrane, the jazz icon. And um, there was no footage of him in the studio whatsoever. Some photos, but no footage. So uh, my uh, uh, producer, Dave Harding, and I are in New York at a home of this photographer, and we're going through negatives and contact sheets looking for unique shots of Coltrane. And we come across this one photograph of a guy and Coltrane in the recording studio. And I must have said something like, oh, shit. And, my, and Dave says to me, what? And I said, look at this photo. And he says, it's Coltrane and some guy in the studio. So what? And I said, look what the guy is holding in his hand. And the guy is holding a Super 8 movie camera. What am I thinking? Of course, that he shot something in the studio that day. So uh, the photographer who was Chuck Stewart uh, remembered that this guy was Art Davis, who was a world-class bass player, jazz bass player. We tracked down his son, who's an insurance broker here in Van Nuys, California. And we called him up and he said, yeah, I got all the home movies in the garage. And we went out and, uh, and uh, after about three weekends of going through his home movies, most of which were mom and dad and grandma and grandpa uh, in, the, in the backyard on the swings, uh, we found a seven and a half minute color reel of Coltrane in the studio. So that's the kind of detective work we have to do because I don't want to just have the same film and video and photos that every other documentary has. I'd like to find really unique stuff. And we did that very much here on uh, what the hell happened to blood, sweat and tears. There's a lot of material that no one has seen before. By the way, I love chasing train. So just have to have to say that as well. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. So what sort of a fan of blood, sweat and tears were you on a one to 10, 10 being fanatical? Uh, I would say an eight. Uh, I, I love the band. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, if you've talked to Blood, Sweat and Tears fans, but um, there are some that fall into, we love the first album with Al Cooper uh, and we don't like the rest. Uh, it's not hip enough for us. Or we love the Dave, David Clayton Thomas years and we poo-poo the Al Cooper because he couldn't sing. And I'm somewhere between the two of them. I, I love both of them. I thought that first album was just sensational. Uh, uh, and I love the David Clayton Thomas years. There's, uh, he is such a unique, such a great singer uh, that really brings that material uh, uh, up another level. Uh, so I was a big fan. I'd, I'd sort of come across them in high school and played them on my college radio show at Oberlin College. And 
uh, but then, you know, all the years go by and, uh, and nothing happens. And then uh, when Bobby Columbia called me one day, and we'd only met once before, I didn't really know him. He called one day and said, I want to take you to lunch and, and tell you a story. And uh, we went to lunch and I'm telling him about what I just said to you about, I love these albums. And, and uh, I literally said to him, what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears? Here you were in 1970, one of the biggest bands going, and then you weren't. What happened? And he said, well, that's the story I'm going to tell you. And that's the story uh, in our film. Did you ever get any sense uh, where Al Cooper's uh, head uh, was on all of this at all? No, um, I love Al. I love his uh, solo work and I have a lot of those albums. And I actually interviewed him for my uh, Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him film. I like long titles, Buzz. I don't know why that is. Um, uh, uh, so I love Al, but Al really wasn't part of the story because we weren't doing a history of Blood, Sweat and Tears. We're really focused on a moment in time that summer of 1970 and what happened. Did you have any preconceived notions? of the band that you needed to sort of monitor in this process that you went through in creating this? Um, not really. Um, again, because it wasn't a history of the band, uh, it didn't really matter what my opinions were about the music or about the, the individual uh, members of the band. Um, what I didn't really know is Bobby had given me the rough outline of what happened. And that's really all he knew. Um, uh, what we had to do was to be able to find documentation that told us what really was happening behind the scenes and what was happening on the ground in those three communist countries, Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland. And again, back to our detective theme, uh, uh, most of those documents were not in the State Department files or not at the National Archive. What happens is a lot of these government departments deposit everything at the National Archive, but then after 10, 15 years, there's some evaluation that goes on. Uh, is this important? And if it isn't, they would just toss it, not for nefarious reasons, but just because of storage space. And somehow, uh, 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 William Fulbright, who's a congressman from Arkansas, decided he loved this part of the State Department's uh, activities, the cultural exchange program. So send all those files to the University of Arkansas. And that's where we found them. And it was a treasure trove of material for us that really helped us to piece together what we thought was happening behind the scenes. And we can talk about that later when you uh, when you share your theory. I love also how you went back for that whole cultural presentations program, that uh, Dizzy Gillespie uh, piece <laughs> was uh, unbelievable. With, with I think that was with uh, Adam Clayton Powell, right? Adam Clayton Powell was a congressman from Harlem. And uh, oh, let me bring out my, my good friend at Dizzy Gillespie. We, we were delighted to find that piece of film. And again, that's one that hasn't been seen very often. And we just love that. And, and I love the fact that uh, we're talking here about uh, weapons to use against the uh, the Russians uh, in the Cold War, and 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 Dizzy Gillespie has his cool weapon, which we thought was really great. <laughs> that is really amazing. So, talk about the uh, eerie arrival on the scene of this guy named Larry Goldblatt. <laughs> Larry was um, 
became the manager for, for Blood, Sweat and Tears in September of 1969. Uh, the band had gone through a couple of managers before that, and they were looking for somebody with some fresh ideas who thought outside the box. And their lawyer brought uh, to Bobby Columbi uh, this guy, Larry Goldblatt. And, uh, you know, fresh thinker, outside the box, does great things. I think he'd be terrific for you. And Bobby says, well, that's great. Uh, there's only one problem. Well, what's that? Uh, he's been in prison. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, anyway, it turns out he'd been into prison for uh, writing uh, some bad checks. And he was in Chino Prison here in California. Um, but they hired him. And, and he really, uh, for, for a time, really did some great things for the band. Um, and it was Larry who, when he took over, knew that there was this immigration problem involving David Clayton Thomas. And uh, rightly so, decided he needed to be proactive to solve this problem. And uh, we talk about uh, uh, what he did in our film. Um, is Larry deceased at this point? Yes. Uh, Larry died in 1986. Um, uh, I believe from cancer. Uh, I don't remember exactly. But yes, he died in 1986. He, um, he was with the band till about 1972. And then they let him go, and he kind of knocked around for a while, not quite sure what he did. Um, uh, but then, yes, I passed away in the mid '80s, so we weren't able to talk to him. But uh, we have a woman in our film, Tina Cunningham, who was his assistant, and who also was his wife. Um, they got married in Yugoslavia when the band was there on tour. The U.S. embassy there arranged for a church for them to get married. The ambassador to Yugoslavia uh, gave her away at the ceremony because her own father could, couldn't come all that distance to Yugoslavia. And David Clayton Thomas was the best man. And uh, uh, I get asked sometimes, did you have any sequences that, that didn't make the film? And that was actually one of them. Uh, the film crew shot the wedding and some, some activity before and after on the street outside. And, uh, they gave uh, Tina a 15-minute roll of film, and uh, she found that in her attic and gave it to us, and we did a new transfer and everything. And it was in the film for a while. It's very sweet and very touching, and it was a little sort of a different tone for the film, but ultimately it was kind of off story, and we decided it, it wasn't really appropriate to have it in there. But um, uh, anyway, Tina had great insights into Larry for those reasons, and uh, it was as if we had access to him, but not quite. I think it's probably great that Larry remained this eerie kind of creepy character uh, <laughs> rather than uh, this uh, sweet uh, guy who got married. <laughs> well, you, 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 you said it. And, you know, you've been around the music business long enough. You know, there's a lot of shady characters. And uh, so this was not unusual, but uh, it, it did provide a little bit of drama for our narrative. So the classified information that you had to get, you mentioned earlier a little bit about that, but th that must have been incredibly difficult to really gain that access, was it? Um, there are two sort of parts to that, Buzz. One is uh, a number of the files over the years have been declassified, and those are the ones that showed up at the University of Arkansas. And that would have been internal um, uh, memos, correspondence, telegrams and telexes from Europe. All of that had been classified at one time and over the years got declassified. So that was fairly easy for us to, to use. 
Uh, we did need some things, uh, uh, again, here, detective work. Uh, I came across in one of the Arkansas documents a reference to a Kissinger memo to Nixon about this tour that Blood, Sweat, and Tears made. And I'm like, wait a minute. This made it up to Kissinger and Nixon? How is that? What's that all about? So we had to send some one of our researchers off to the Nixon Library, and ultimately we tracked down this memo. We talk about it in the film, and Kissinger writes Nixon a memo, and then Nixon writes uh, 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 Kissinger some notes on the bottom of the memo, and we have that, which was great. Um, I think what we weren't able to get, Buzz, were two things. Um, I felt that if the State Department was going to send these, these nine young men and their crew over behind the Iron Curtain to these communist countries, the FBI would have had to have vetted them just to make sure that there wasn't anything in their past that was going to be embarrassing to the government. And um, I, I, we, through Freedom of Information Act, we, we did a request and nothing came back, meaning there wasn't anything. But then I, I, I got put in touch with the official historian for the FBI, a great guy, and uh, he did some checking on his own just to make sure. And he said, yeah, there wasn't anything here. And again, I don't think that's nefarious, particularly. I, I think it's just uh, they probably vetted them. Everything was fine. And, you know, somewhere along the way, they didn't need to keep that report anymore. Uh, but the other thing was a little more uh, intriguing to me. Uh, I, I would have thought that maybe there was a CIA presence on this tour somewhere uh, uh, just to sort of keep an eye on things. And uh, we think we know who that might have been, but we're not sure. And again, uh, Freedom of Information Act did not reveal any uh, uh, internal memos or, or reports or anything from people like that, nor did uh, my talk with the official CIA historian. And again, I have to think probably not nefarious. I think the, everything worked the way they wanted it or something, and nobody bothered to save that report. Um, so I would say pretty easy for us to find what we needed. Um, there was so much of it that we really had to go through it and, and be very careful. Uh, you know, unlike certain news organizations uh, uh, in America, I like to tell the truth. And we had to uh, really be careful that we wouldn't have anything in our film unless we could corroborate it uh, two or three times with other sources. And these files enabled us to do that. And I think it's okay that there's some unanswered questions along the way that you can't possibly track down. So I think that adds to the intrigue of the storyline, don't you? Very much so. Absolutely do. Because you can't always find everything. It's like uh, it, there is so much information out there on the Internet about so many things. But, yes, there just always will be some unanswered questions. And that's OK, as long as we, we don't. And, and we will make we will make some educated guesses on things based on the evidence that we do have. So, for example, we, we make an educated guess as to what happened to those 65 hours of footage. We don't have the actual documentation the paper trail that shows us precisely, but but based on the evidence and eyewitness reports, we do uh, take an educated guess as to what happened. How did you possibly track down these concert goers that were at these uh, shows over there in uh, the Soviet bloc? Ah, great question. Um, you know, it's one thing if the band members talk about how great the audiences were and what what they seem to feel the audiences were feeling. But it's a whole other thing when we actually have the people who were there talking about it. So uh, we hired researchers in uh, the former Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland 
And thank heaven for social media over there. They were able to put out the word and said, if you were at these concerts, please contact us. And uh, there were a handful of, of uh, people that did in, in Romania and Poland. And it just really, Buzz, elevated the whole film to be able to not only hear what they say, but to see them and see their faces. And, and you just can tell how significant, how important these concerts were to them, what they meant to them at a time where um, free speech was not uh, part of their daily life. You know, there are people in our country today that, that like to praise Putin. Uh, and, and I think what they forget is what it's like to live under these dictators and the authoritarian regimes. And what these uh, individuals did was to talk about the lives that they had and that these concerts represented a breath of fresh air, freedom to them at a time where they didn't have much. And I think that was an important part of our film, that we could have these people talk uh, for themselves as to what Blood, Sweat and Tears concerts meant to them. And you do believe that considering the world today, uh, comparing it to the summer of 1970, that there are parallels in your movie. Absolutely right. I mean, you look at it, some of the specifics are different, but America in 1970 was very much polarized as we are today. Uh, there were conflicts between the right and the left, the red and the blue states, the east and the west, meaning uh, uh, Russia and America. And Blood, Sweat and Tears really became an early victim of cancel culture before we really knew what that was or, or, or knew what that term meant. Um, and then there were things, Buzz, like when we were editing a sequence about when our historian Tim Naftali, who's fantastic in the film, when he starts to talk about some of the historical context of what was going on in those communist countries in Eastern Europe, he talked a bit about uh, the Czech um, rebellion in, in 1968, where Czechoslovakia tried to uh, become more free and democratic and the Russians uh, invaded uh, with tanks and troops. And we're looking at some footage with which to illustrate that point. And we couldn't help but think of Russian tanks rolling into the Ukraine today. So many, many different parallels. And I think that's what makes our film, uh, from my standpoint, so unique, is that it's not really a music documentary. It's more of a political uh, thriller kind of film. Uh, and I think people who don't know Blood, Sweat and Tears may not know the music, will still find this a fascinating story in and of itself. Then there's the Abby Hoffman piece. If he were alive, he would make uh, some interesting questioning about his role in that uh, infamous Madison Square Garden concert. <laughs> yes, well, you know, Abby was great at political theater and, and gestures in that regard. And we have a, it gave us a great humorous sequence in our film buzz to be able to show what Abby Hoffman tried to do to Blood, Sweat and Tears at Madison Square Garden when they came back from the tour. And uh, it just gave us a chance to get some real laughs in the film. But also, I think, to, to point out, uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears found themselves in a, in a unique position when they came back. That Usually these days, if, if you're criticized politically, it's from one side or the other, from the left or from the right. Blood, Sweat and Tears got it from both the left and the right. And that really was a, a devastating situation for them. Well, they got affected also by this whole cool factor because uh, they, you know, took this crazy leap, right, with the uh, Vegas show. And uh, 
Yeah. Now look at how commonplace it is for acts to play in Vegas, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you were you asked you were asking before about Larry Goldblatt. That was his idea. Let's let's open up Vegas to rock and roll acts. Now everybody does it, and uh, so in a sense, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was on the cutting edge. They were doing it before anybody else did it. It did kind of hurt him at the time, but I think what 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 I've learned um, making the film is that. They had a, uh, when they were a hit act from 69 to, to 71, they had a very broad demographic. They reached uh, young people, rock and roll fans, but they also reached their parents who were jazz fans or pop fans. And um, that in a way also, I think, contributed to a lack of a cool factor that the fact that adults would listen to this music, you know, they weren't quite so, so hip and so cool. Uh, but I think what they were able to do with that music was that it transcended those those demographic barriers that that it was so good, that music, that it really did appeal to a, a broad range. And I think that music still lasts today. Uh, people who hear it on on Sirius XM or any of the other um, uh, outlets there, this music holds up. And I think it's because it was just beautifully arranged and and uh, and beautifully played. Well, they must have been cool enough for uh, Miles Davis to play at the Madison Square Garden uh, show. So if it was cool for Miles, uh, must have been cool enough. <laughs> Don't you think? They had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of cool fans. Uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, a lot of those kind of hip jazz guys loved him. Uh, and, and a lot of rock and rollers loved him. But um, uh, over time, things change, you know, and I, I think part of the answer to the question of what the hell happened to blood, sweat and tears is they really weren't hip anymore. They really weren't cool to anybody after a while. And I think ultimately that had a significant impact on their career. All right. So here's my, uh, my lame question slash, uh, <laughs> uh theory out loud. Um, okay. is it possible that Steve Katz's relationship with a rabble rouser, such as rambling Jack Elliott, maybe put he and the band in bad favor also with the government? It's an interesting question, Buzz. I would have to say uh, we didn't come across any evidence that would suggest that it was anything other than David's immigration problems that caused issues for the band. Steve was clearly outspoken politically, clearly had friends in, in, in more progressive and or slash radical organizations. But, you know, having done a film like the U.S. versus John Lennon, where we really got into the underground and uh, the Abby Hoffmans and the Jerry Rubens and uh, the Weathermen and all those kinds of people that Lennon really did uh, interact with and that brought him uh, to the attention of the FBI, uh, we did not see that here. What we didn't have time to tell in the film, so I'll, I'll share it with you now, is... Um, the first inkling that something was going on with the band actually came uh, earlier, uh, almost a year earlier than the tour. In late June of 1969, there was a little break in the Blood, Sweat and Tears schedule. And David Clayton Thomas went back to Canada to see family and friends and maybe take care of some business. And uh, he was supposed to come back to the States because they were going to headline at the Newport Jazz Festival on July 4th, 1969. And when he got to the airport, the Canadian authorities wouldn't let him out because the American authorities wouldn't let him in. And it was because of this 
a green card issue. And that was the first uh, notion that, wait a minute, we may have an issue here. The, the head of the Newport Jazz Festival, George Ween, apparently, he, uh, according to his book, he reached out to a friend of his who was in uh, the Nixon administration, and they worked it out, and David was allowed back in, and they did, in fact, play the, the Newport Jazz Festival. But it appeared to, to uh, linger as an ongoing problem, and that's why when Larry Goldblatt came on in the fall, he said, I, we got to solve this. This is really going to be a problem. Uh, now, that's not to say that maybe there wasn't an FBI file on Steve that we didn't find, um, but we just didn't come across that. Well, thanks for the insight on um, the making of it and the storyline and for the great work of your documentary, your political thriller, What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears. Uh, I appreciate you, John, for being on. Uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the questions. Very smart, good questions. Appreciate it. Taking a Walk is produced by Bob Malatesta. It's hosted by me, Buzz Knight. And I hope you'll follow us on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review and kindly spread the word about taking a walk. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.